0: Hello, my name is David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, our Talking Politics guide is with Helen Thompson, professor of political economy, and she's going to be explaining Bretton Woods, what it means, and what actually happened. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. This Christmas gift subscriptions to the LRB for yourself or somebody else start from just 1999. Find our best offers and a reading list to accompany today's episode at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking. Woods is a place and it also describes a period of history. So if before we get to the place and what happened there, can we just describe what the International Financial Order was before the period that we call Bretton Woods. How was the world organised before then?
1: Well, the question about what came before is quite difficult because what came immediately before is the Second World War. So the point of comparison that the people who created Bretton Woods had was really what happened in the interwar years. And that's really three different things that happened. The first is a period of instability when there wasn't a gold standard. The second was a period when there was a revised gold standard effectively under American leadership but in a really incomplete way and then there's a period from like 19 either from 1931 or 1933 depending when you want to say the gold standard ended in a meaningful way um, when you basically have no rules anyway about exchange rates and monetary and financial issues it's an era of instability and Bretton and Woods is thought about I think by those who created it as a reflection or reaction against all those three periods of the interwar years in different ways.
0: And the gold standard, that middle one, it broke down, and it broke down why?
1: It was designed to try to achieve stability, because the immediate period after the First World War was extremely unstable in terms of monetary relations between states, but it also led, spectacularly in the case of Germany, to the hyperinflation of 1922-1923. So it was an attempt to say, look, we have to have some rules and we have to have a means of capital flowing between the United States and Europe and we have to have some exchange rate stability. It breaks down really because the world economy goes into depression from 1929. But in some sense, that is the symptom as much as the cause because... The underlying problem, I think, is, is that it's actually really difficult for governments to manage their economies in ways that the gold standard requires. So there becomes a, a conflict between the domestic, economic and political imperatives facing politicians, and indeed to some extent central banks, and what the rules of the gold standard require. And various states then pull off it in the 1930s.
0: And the rules, it's a disciplining measure, basically. Yeah. It's actually designed to give politicians less leeway because one of the fears and this is presumably also a fear of democratic politics was that the politicians had a tendency to inflate their currencies anyway and this was to discipline them.
1: It was I mean it wasn't so much the politicians who were constrained because very few of them were actually deciding monetary policy at that point it was the central banks but the politicians were worrying very deeply about what the central banks were doing and nowhere was that probably actually more than the case than than Britain, because some countries, at least until the crash of 1929, do quite well out of the gold standard, and Germany would be one of them. I think that the Weimar Republic has its best years during the gold standard, it needed uh, the years. discipline, yeah. But in the British case, the problem was that Britain ended up with high unemployment really right the way through the 1920s, and the concern amongst the politicians and at the Treasury was that Britain was not able to have a monetary response to unemployment, i.e. wasn't able to have lower interest rates because the Bank of England was having to worry first and foremost about sterling's value against gold.
0: So if the choices before Bretton Woods seemed to be either chaos or the kind of discipline that actually produces high unemployment and can't be lived with politically, what was the breakthrough idea that Bretton Woods came up with? And I guess we should also say where Bretton Woods is and what happened there.
1: Well, Bretton Woods was the, the place in New Hampshire where a conference happened in the summer of 1944 to create a new international monetary and financial architecture. And at its heart, it had a fixed exchange rate system and it created the international financial institutions, the IMF and the World Bank. I think that If it has an idea at its heart, it's an American idea. It's the idea of Harry Dexter White, who was its fundamental architect, even though John Maynard Keynes would like to think that he was, or would have liked to have thought that he was. And that is that the world needed to move back to exchange rate stability, and that it needed a trading system that was compatible with exchange rate stability, and that meant that the dollar had to be the centrepiece of the new international monetary world. And that the dollar was gonna have this privileged position in which by it and it alone was gonna be convertible into gold at a fixed rate.
0: So is it fair to say that it replaces the gold standard with the dollar standard?
1: It is, in, in the sense that the gold standard ended up causing significant problems for the United States. And Franklin Roosevelt, when he came into office, made it a priority to take the United States off gold. Although it is also the case that if you'd asked the European countries, particularly the British government and British officials, what the problem with the gold standard is, they would have said in significant part, American monetary leadership. But the, the gold standard of the interwar years did not make the dollar the currency of international trade. Effectively, Bretton Woods does make the dollar the basis of international trade, and it tries to preserve some idea of a currency that is still backed by metal. We live in a world in which none of them are that hasn't been given up on the idea that gold still has to play some part in the system is still quite important to harry dexter white but it has to be in his mind a trading order in which the dollar is the important currency and just that
0: idea of paper money backed by metal is the basis of that that you can't just conjure metal out of thin air but you can conjure paper money out of thin air and so the point of gold is to prevent printing of money and the devaluing of money.
1: Yeah, I think that it's a it's really quite interesting question why Harry Dexter White was as keen as he was in maintaining gold as part of the system, because in an important sense, it introduces the fundamental contradiction into the system by making dollar gold the basis of Bretton Woods. Because what it means is, and this becomes quite clear really by the early 1960s, is that you end up having to choose between two problems. You either have a world in which there aren't enough dollars in terms of those that are available to non-American states, or you have a world in which there isn't enough gold, and it's one or the other. So I think the system in this sense does have a fundamental flaw to it, and that Dexter White was proved wrong, I think, in thinking that the two ways of doing it were reconcilable with each other.
0: So it's a kind of extension of some of the gold standard ideas, but it's also meant to be fundamentally different and in some ways more flexible, right? It it has more flexibility in it than the, the previous system, which seemed to offer this binary choice between discipline and collapse.
1: Yeah, I think that that is one way of looking at it, because in the end, what happened with the gold standard is, is states, as you say, had to choose to maintain their currency against gold or they ended up leaving it. And the point of the fixed exchange rate system in Bretton Woods was that they would have the option of being able to revalue their currencies. The caveat to thinking that it's simply a choice between sort of chaos and instability is the ability of states to devalue was in any meaningful sense subject to American veto. So, via the IMF. So, from the point of view of the Americans, it was in some sense a way of reducing the ability of other states to devalue against their currencies, because that is what they ended up with as a conclusion as why they didn't like the gold standard, because you could actually sort of suspend your convertibility under the gold standard. So you know, Roosevelt by 1933 is saying, look, all these states can devalue. They can just go off gold and they're you know, like screwing us over by doing so. So there is a way of looking at it, which actually says, if you're not the United States, that this actually introduced more requirements of discipline upon you or at least it was conceived at least of doing so, than what the gold standard was. Now, the difficulty in practice was that the Americans, Harry, Dexter, White and Co., had misconceived the nature of the problem that the European economies faced. So the Americans did have to accept pretty much all the European states and others, devaluing quite considerably in 1949, so just five years after the system had started. But I don't think it should be underestimated is how important it was to the Americans at at Bretton Woods to try to make sure that others didn't have the opportunity to devalue.
0: Bretton Woods has this reputation that it was a period of political as well as economic stability, and that it was a genuinely global system that worked. Yet, as you've described it, it also sounds like it was part of the project that made the 20th century the American century. So why did the rest of the world buy into it?
1: I don't think they really had much choice. I mean, if you look at the position of which everybody else was in, in 1944, they were in desperate need of American credit. And the war hasn't even ended. And the war hasn't even ended. So in some sense, they have to accept if they want American credit, which they're going to have to live in a, a completely different way than they used to in peacetime if they don't. They have to accept the terms that the Americans offer. And if you if you look at the British position, you know, the British were the ones who tried to exercise more influence than anybody else over what was agreed at at Bretton Woods through through Keynes. He wanted a post war world in which the Americans would be disciplined too. I mean he wanted effectively an international currency for trading purposes, not to move to some kind of global monetary union but he, he wanted trade to be financed by an international currency that he called the banker and he was completely defeated in that because in the end Keynes had to accept that Britain and this was true for Britain more than perhaps for any other state it was just entirely financially dependent on the United States in this sense it was the American way or no way unless they were prepared to retreat back into barter and bilateral relations trade relations I mean by that.
0: So I'm going to ask a series of questions about what's the connection between Bretton Woods and... So the first one is, what's the relationship between Bretton Woods and the Marshall Plan, the massive investment that the United States made in the recovery of Europe?
1: Well, in some sense, the Marshall Plan is the bypassing of Bretton Woods, because what the main Bretton Woods institutions, it was conceived the International Monetary Fund, was supposed to do, was it was supposed to provide short-term credit to states with balance of payments problems who were facing dollar shortages, and that's exactly... What happened on a scale that the Americans couldn't have conceived possible happened to the European economies in 1946-1947. They had desperate need. They had desperate needs of dollars. They had large balance of payments deficits and you know what should have happened is that the International Monetary Fund should have provided them with loans. Now the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, had not been set up with enough capital to deal with the volume of dollar supply that was required in Europe. But there was also another problem by this point, and that was that um, Franklin Roosevelt was dead. The new president, Harry Truman, was a lot less keen on the Bretton Woods arrangements than Roosevelt had been. He appointed people to the Treasury who didn't like it. The man who had been put in charge of the IMF was indeed Harry Dexter White. But by this point, he was under FBI investigation for being a communist spy, or at least for passing classified documents to the Soviet Union. So when it came to the crisis that Europe faced in 1946, 1947, still going into 1948, is the Truman administration chose to deal with it via the Marshall Plan and not via the IMF. So the multilateral rules that would have applied under the IMF didn't come into it and the Marshall Plan was a series of bilateral agreements between the Americans and individual European states to which some quite strict political conditionality, whether tacit or explicit, could be attached, something that couldn't have been done via the IMF. The IMF was just politically discredited by what had happened to Harry Dexter White. So in that sense, the Marshall Plan is a is a defeat for an important aspect of what Bretton Woods was supposed to be.
0: So that leads on to my next question, which is what's the relationship between Bretton Woods and the Cold War? Because in 1944, the Soviets presumably were not at Bretton Woods. Are they? Or were, no, they, they, were, yeah, they were they? Did they play much of a part? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Okay, so they were there in their name. But the post-war world is a divided world. So is Bretton Woods also the international financial system for, quote unquote, the West?
1: The geopolitics of this are are interesting because both the, the Soviets and the Chinese were represented at Bretton Woods. And obviously, by the time you get to the 1950s, then they're not part of this multilateral international monetary and trading order. And at the same time, for obvious reasons, Germany and Japan were not at Bretton Woods. And by the nineteen fifties they are part of that order, they are incorporated into it. So Bread and Woods is conceived in the pre Cold War world and before there's any sense whatsoever that Germany is going to be reconstructed. Indeed, Harry Dexter White's master, so to speak, you know, Morgantown wants literally Germany to be destroyed. I mean he wants to turn it back into an agrarian economy. That is the basis of dealing with Germany at um, Bretton Woods. And Truman abandons all that. Truman moves for a policy to support the industrial reconstruction of what was going to now be West Germany, indeed to make West Germany the engine of growth, industrial growth in Western Europe. So what remains of Bretton Woods after the 1947-1948 crisis that brings about martial aid is reinvented in the 1950s. I mean, the exchange rate system stays in place, but the whole geopolitical logic of it has changed.
0: So That leads to my next question, because I think for many people for whom the Bretton Woods period is, is a golden time that they look back on fondly, they associate it with, particularly in Europe, what's sometimes called the 30 glorious years of significant, rapid economic growth, but relatively full employment as well. So there's a correlation there. The 30 years of the Bretton Woods era coincides with this amazing period for Western Europe. So correlation is not causation. Is this actually just a coincidence? Because what you've just described sounds a bit like the original Bretton Woods plan was more like maybe what we associate with the IMF today and was was more austere and in some ways more punitive. The great success of European reconstruction was not Bretton Woods. It was a, a side effect of a different kind of politics.
1: Yeah, I think the question of like how much the Bretton Woods order itself contributes to economic success for Western Europe in particular, but also for Japan of the Bretton Woods years is a, is a really quite difficult question to unravel. I think that it's fair to say that it helps in reducing problems of financial instability and currency instability and that the which we haven't talked about so far, the capital controls provisions of Bretton Woods that allow states to control the movements of capital ...in and out of their economies... ...and that, for the case of Western Europe... ...that meant short-term flows in and out... ...for the most part, not entirely... Um, ...reduces the financial instability... ...that had characterised the gold standard... ...in the 1920s in this respect. So I think that it's also the case... ...that the sense that the Americans... ...were providing by one means or another... ...and it didn't turn out to be the IMF really... ...but it turned out to be Marshall aid... Support for Western European economies is an important part of their success. And indeed, I think that there is particular support given to the, the West German economy by the Americans in one way or another during those years. Against that, I'd say, is that some of Western European success is simply rapid economic reconstruction after the devastation of the war. You would expect, as long as you don't move on to another catastrophe, that you will get a period of rapid growth. The other thing that's true is, is that it's a period of low oil prices. The Americans are still the most significant oil producer in the world, and they are able to keep prices relatively low. And it, it's not entirely a coincidence that Bretton Woods comes careering off the rails, so to speak, and oil comes careering off the rails in the 1970s at the same time.
0: Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. Let's try and make sense of the unravelling of it. It was, would you agree it was until it stopped being that, a success story?
1: It is a success story on the surface, I think to the point when... When, when it stops being when it, a success when it ends story. In, and, and I think when you move back to floating exchange rates in March 1973, I think that the the complication of, of simply saying it's a success story is is that it does have to be patched up in various, what seem like technical ways, but are actually getting at really structural foundational problems, really from like 1961 onwards. Because, you know, the whole system in terms of exchange rates has to run on this idea, this belief of others that the dollar can be convertible into gold at $35 an ounce. And by the time we get to 1960, 1961, that promise is not redeemable. The United States simply doesn't have enough. Gold, in order to do that, and that's not an accident. It goes back to the problem that I said earlier of, in the end, Bretton Woods created a dynamic where either there wasn't enough dollars or there wasn't enough gold. So, if you are going to say international trade is going to grow, which is obviously a good thing and was an important part of the economic success, most of that international trade is going to take place in dollars. That very success actually causes a problem for the exchange rate part of it because the more successful international trade is done in dollars, the less gold there will be in order to back it. So what you see through the 1960s is various attempts by central banks, obviously coordinated by the Federal Reserve Board to try and patch this up. But you have quite considerable political resistance to that in France when de Gaulle's the president who will hold these press conferences and basically demand that French dollars be turned into gold because he says that The US is destroying the monetary order by running the American economy in a way that makes the dollar inflationary. It's not the Americans' fault in this respect. There are things that the Americans do that contribute to that issue. But the underlying problem is this misaligned relationship between dollar and gold.
0: Because the other thing that it looks like from the outside that is the inherent tension in the system is the dollar is playing the part of gold, but the dollar is also the domestic currency of the United States, and it's subject to the domestic politics of the United States. And there may be international pressures, but there are also domestic pressures that produce inflation. And once the dollar can no longer be tied to gold in the way that it was at the beginning of the system, aren't you on a slippery slope and this thing is going to undo anyway? Can you can you get it back? Because isn't the domestic politics basically impossible?
1: It is. I mean, I think what happens in this respect is, is that when Nixon comes into office in, in 1969, he speeds up the end of Bretton Woods. I think it's possible that another American president would have dragged the system on for longer. But,
0: With an austere domestic yeah, programme. But
1: Nixon's simply not willing to do that. And he's partly not willing to do that because he's already challenging parts of the international trading order when he runs for office in 1968 because he's making a, a pretty protectionist message, particularly directed at textile producers in the, in the South, because the other side of the way in which the international economy worked in the 50s and the 60s was the Americans turning a blind eye to protectionism, both from the European economic community, as it then was, but in particular from Japan. And Nixon realises that there's votes to be had in not tolerating that.
0: And that sounds a bit familiar yeah. today, am yeah, I right? Yeah, no. I think, I mean, is I that think, Trumpish?
1: I think that there were clear parallels because of the, there is an American trade deficit on and off during the 1960s. But by the time you get to 1969, it's, it's got bigger. And I think Nixon does understand this. It's going to get even bigger in the 1970s for the very simple reason that from about 1970 onwards, the United States has to import more and more oil. And so the more the US has to become an oil importer, which is what happens to it in the 1970s, the bigger the US trade deficit is going to get. Now, Bretton Woods wood been conceived in a world in which the Americans had a large trade surplus. That is why... Harry Dexter White thought that the dollar not only could be but should be the basis of the international monetary system. That world is disappearing. Now Nixon was particularly sensitive to all the domestic constraints that were going to come with that and partly he was extremely concerned about interest rates because in his mind, the Federal Reserve Board had cost him the election against John Kennedy back in 1960 by raising interest rates in the in the run-up to it. So he was absolutely determined that that wasn't going to happen to him in the run-up to 1972. I mean, you could say he didn't need to have worried given that George McGovern was his opponent, but we know, but we know
0: he was a warrior because he did other things in that election so, that didn't do yeah, him any favours So
1: basically Nixon plays the part of an American president who says, we are not going to accept the domestic constraints that come with this for us. And he unilaterally, without any consultation with anybody, you know, ends dollar gold convertibility in August 1971.
0: And that's the end of Bretton Woods.
1: Well, it's patched up in this sense that fixed exchange rates system continues. There are devaluations against the dollar. Nixon essentially puts tariffs on goods coming in from Europe and Japan and says they're staying there until you devalue. He gets those devaluations in something called the Smithsonian Agreement. And the system sort of carries on in a patched up way until March 1973. And then it becomes clear that that there's no longer the will any longer to maintain fixed exchange rates. And that is when that system ends. And I think that is the point when you can say Bretton Woods is over.
0: One more question about the breakdown before we talk about what came after. The other thing the United States was doing when Nixon came into office was fighting an extremely expensive and ultimately unsuccessful war in Vietnam. Does that have anything to do with the breakdown?
1: I think that it does because there's no doubt that it is one of the sources of inflationary pressure in the US economy. Is that both, particularly Johnson, wanted to fight that war without raising taxes at the same time as he was financing the, the Great Society? That meant the United States was going to borrow. That's partly what de Gaulle's critique is about de Gaulle's kind of saying, look, you're abusing your position in the system because you shouldn't be doing these, what de Gaulle was deeming these feckless things, including ultimately he thought the war in Vietnam was feckless as well as everything else, or reckless at least, if not feckless. And that you cannot be the power that is supposed to maintain this international monetary order if you're simply the power, also the power that is behaving in this way. Now, I think that de Gaulle overstates the case, but there's no doubt that Um, the war in Vietnam speeds up the end of Bretton Woods.
0: What replaces it? It's a kind of perfect storm in a way. You've got Vietnam, you've got the oil crisis, you've got domestic political pressures in the United States, you've got the changing nature of the international economy. As we move through the 1970s, what replaces it and also what remains of it? Because after all, the institutions continue, the World Bank, the IMF.
1: Well, the institutions do continue and that remains until this day. I mean, what happens in terms of exchange rates is really that the response, the primary response to the end of fixed exchange rates comes in, in Europe. It comes within the European community and the view that if the international monetary order is gone then there needs to be a European monetary order of some kind and so that they basically try to create pegged exchange rates between themselves. The first arrangement is called snake. It's quite a loose <laughs> system actually one form of it exists in the last months of Bretton Woods as well in 1972 but it stays into the post Bretton Woods world but it then runs into what's going to become the new problem for the European states is as there is now one European currency that has a lot more credibility than all the others and that's the Deutsche Mark so then it becomes a question of how are these other European countries states going to peg their currencies to a currency that has more intrinsic value or credibility than theirs do. So the snake breaks down the European monetary system with the exchange rate mechanism as its centrepiece is created as the next version of the European monetary order that begins in, in 1979. That Allows for a reasonable amount initially um, of flexibility in the system, but that version of the ERM is effectively ended when Francois Mitterrand, the French president, realizes that he can't pursue his macroeconomic policy that he would prefer to inside the constraints of the exchange rate mechanism and then moves to a policy of essentially saying, okay, we'll try to make the French franc as hard as the Deutschmark. That doesn't really work. And French frustration with that is what leads to ultimately to the creation of the euro. So there's a, there's a very clear story that runs from the end of Bretton Woods to the creation of the euro.
0: That's the European story. And is there then a, a rival almost mirror image story in other parts of the world, particularly the developing world, where in the absence of fixed exchange rate, you do go back to much, much more volatility crises, including currency crises, that can almost spring up overnight. And as while Europe tries to replace one form of stability with another potentially unworkable form of stability, the rest of the world is facing up to the old volatility again.
1: It has been, because one of the things that also happens in the wake of the end of Bretton Woods, you can see the beginnings of it already in the last years of Bretton Woods, but really takes off after the end of Bretton Woods, is the growth of international capital markets and the ability of states to borrow large sums of money. Because one of the things that's true about the Bretton Woods years is is most governments ran balanced budgets. If you look at the Latin American states, they weren't, didn't really have much choice because they were shut out of international capital markets. What we have in the 1970s is a number of developing countries that tended to be at the higher income end of it, not the very poorest um, countries, suddenly had access to much more credit. and Credit bubbles, various kinds, were created, and they ended up then with debt crises that were made much, much worse because much of the money was borrowed in dollars. The dollar had now become a much more volatile currency. By the late 70s, early 80s, when Paul Volcker took over at the Federal Reserve Bar, the dollar went soaring up. As a consequence of that, a number of um, Latin American countries were precipitated into an intense debt crisis led by Mexico when it defaulted in 1982, and that's the developing countries' debt crisis, which dominates the decade of the 1980s for quite a number of countries with long-term consequences. And, and that then moves to East Asia yeah, in the and then, Yeah, and that also comes out of the end of Bretton Woods, because this is a world in which you have... The post-Bretton Woods world is, is a world in which there is much more currency instability and that currency instability has the capacity in certain times to produce intense crisis.
0: So I'm going to ask you a final question, which I realise is too simplistic. But if the point of Bretton Woods was, was to get away from the choice between unsustainable discipline or chaos, we've come back to a world where the euro represents unsustainable discipline. Other parts of the world have once again represent this kind of volatility and chaos. Is that because the Bretton Woods dream was a kind of illusion or should we actually be saying to ourselves, how can we get back to what we had between 44 and 74, whatever it was, the 30 glorious years? Is there, was it, was it a nice dream or was it actually the thing that we should always be striving for?
1: I don't think we can go back there. I think that it, it is ultimately a three decades that are a function of the nature of American power at that middle point in the 20th century. And that this was a world in which you had, you know, like one dominant economy to begin with that could shape the rules for others, that had enough in it for everybody else to cooperate, and enough in it for the United States, accepting that there were some constraints that went with it to maintain the system. But I think that. The United States still has lots of power in any number of ways, but it does not have the power any longer to maintain such a system. Not least because other states, ones we haven't talked about, including China and Russia, but most consequentially, obviously, China, are very unhappy about a world that is dominated by the dollar, because that causes problems for them. So now, any kind of like multilateral agreement about exchange rates is going to be a lot more than an agreement between the United States and Western European
0: states. If Bretton Woods needs a power to anchor it, the power that can anchor it in the way that gold, which isn't a power, it's just Mm -hmm. a thing, anchored the previous system, and America can't do it, could another power do it? So could the, ultimately, if we look at this in the long view, is there the possibility of a shift to an order where China anchors a system maybe not for the whole world? I was in Budapest recently, and the thing that most struck me at the airport was the first advert you see is for uh, the Chinese currency being pitched to the Hungarians as something that they should think about buying?
1: I think that two things are are true here. First of all is that, that China doesn't have a currency that is completely convertible. So it does have aspirations for its currency to be much more international than it is, but it is a long, long way from being able to do that. And the thing that the Chinese are concentrating more on at the moment is trying to make sure that they can buy oil and gas, not in dollars. So they're they're in a more defensive mode, I would say, about that. But I think as well, if you you read some of the things that are written in China about this question, they're very wary, even in the very, very long term, about any idea that they then have the international currency. Because if you look at the story of the states with international currencies, it doesn't last and it causes domestic problems that have then got to be managed.
0: You could say not only does China not want to be America. Actually, America is the morality tale here. You get too much power and people hang too much on you.
1: It is. I mean, the question in a way, and I don't know what the answer to this is, but it's an interesting one to think about it, is, it, was the system doomed because of this choice that the Americans made? And it really was Dexter White's choice of saying the dollar will be the international currency, but it will still be backed to gold. Was not the, the problem created by trying to have it both ways? of trying to have the dollar and gold. I don't know what the answer to that is, is whether it would have been easier to work the system. I suspect it would have been if it had simply been a straightforward dollar system and not having to have the constraint of gold added into it. On the other hand, I mean, I think that those people who worry about living in a world, you know, like it is since 1971, where we simply live in a world of paper money and where central banks can do the kinds of things they've been doing over the last 10 years or so. QE. Yeah, QE. I don't think there are reasons to to worry about that. I mean, I think that people can say, okay, it's been fine so far, but I mean, this is, you know, like 40 years in the whole of human history, and we don't actually know how this experiment of managing without metal altogether is going to turn out.
0: Helen did one of our guides over the summer to the 1970s, and we'll tweet the link to that at tppodcast underscore. Our last guide is next week. It's a big one it's Martin Rees talking about existential risk. My name's David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics.